I think you never know if it's the right time to do anything. And I think the difference between people who start things and people who don't is simply that some people start things. We are Harvard Ventures, and this is The Bottom Line, a podcast about entrepreneurship, innovation, and everything in between. I'm Jonathan, and today Ryan and I will be joined by Justin Fishner Wolfson. Justin graduated from Stanford with honors, and after college, he went to work at Founders Fund alongside legendary investor Peter Thiel. Justin now runs his own VC firm, 137 Ventures, and was an early stage investor in incredible companies like SpaceX. So now let's get to the bottom line. Could you talk a little bit about kind of your time in college and share some of the experiences at school that you found particularly valuable? Kind of like what impact, if any, did Stanford have on helping you become the investor you are today? So Stanford, you know, is a particularly good network if you're interested in venture, right? There's a huge population of folks who've gone into both venture and obviously started a bunch of companies. So so the network was was particularly valuable. Um you know, the things I did when I was there that, you know, in particular, right, I was a Mayfield fellow, right? And so that is kind of specific to the, you know, tech and venture ecosystem. I also did Stanford and Washington, which was a really great experience. Um, you know, other than that, there wasn't, you know, there weren't, I think, a lot of like particularly relevant experiences to what I do today. I don't think there are a lot of people who, you know, use the content that they learned in college on a day-to-day basis, uh, especially if you're not in engineering. So, it, you know, I don't, I don't think it mattered that much in, in, in sort of a specific skill set perspective. Um, but like I said, the, the network of folks that, you know, I got to know because of that was, was very instrumental in, in where I am today. Would you say you've invested kind of in a lot of Stanford startups that from basis, like based off people that you've met at school or would you say like that's not really been the case? Uh, I mean, I can think of one obvious example, right? So we're investors in Gusto and, you know, Josh Reeves was a Mayfield fellow and, you know, the, the founders went to Stanford. There are probably other companies where the founders went to Stanford. I, I just don't necessarily think about it like that. So I, I couldn't pull it off the top of my head, but like, I definitely know Josh from college. So Justin, there's, I'm sure you've maybe seen the post. There's a recent article about how Stanford has the most VC-backed startup founders of any university in the world. Wondering if maybe if there's something in the water in Palo Alto, or maybe it's a culture that kind of breeds itself, so to speak. But do you have any thoughts on why uh, the setting is so apt for that? Oh, I mean, I do think these things are somewhat cultural and they're somewhat, you know, community-driven. Stanford, you know, given its location and its history, it, it it's a lot easier to do things. And, you know, what I would sort of say is people, people, especially in college, like they don't necessarily know all the possibilities. Like I can tell you, at least when I was, I was in college, if you asked people like what jobs were available, they would have told you, you know, you know, banker, you know, consultant. And then if you tried to push them, you know, if they were an engineer, they would have said whatever engineering they're in. But like, I think people had a very limited view of like, what are the possible jobs that, you know, you could, you could uh, pursue. Stanford, because of where it sits, you know, I think especially given the kind of last 10 years, you know, they've added like start a company to that mix, right? So people do things that they know are possible because they've seen other people do them and they know people who've done them. So so I think that's probably a big portion of it. Um, 
you know, beyond that, right? Like the ecosystem that's kind of local to the area in terms of like, you know, angel investors and venture capital and things like that, you, you know, make it a lot easier than if you're at other good schools that just don't have that kind of infrastructure. Going off that a little bit, a lot, kind of like, as you said, a lot of people um, at Harvard and other schools as well go into banking and kind of consulting right after college. What would your advice be to someone that wants to kind of break into the VC space out of college? When you say VC, like specifically on the investing side or just broadly into like tech? More specifically on the investing side. Ah, I think you're at a tougher moment in the cycle, right? There are a lot fewer job opportunities given, you know, like I, I suspect there's a handful of funds that will not survive the current cycle and or they'll be slow to raise new funds, which will reduce the number of total job opportunities. And for what it's worth, there are really very few job opportunities in venture to begin with. You know, I would say that my historical advice has always been, you know, if you want to go be a venture investor, go raise any amount of money and you can go be an investor, right? Like it doesn't require you to be, it doesn't mean you'll be a good investor, but it does mean that you can create your own job. So, I mean, I still think that's kind of the easiest way if you really want to get into it and you're serious. You know, other than that, I think you, you just have to make the effort to build a network within that community. And so that way you're aware of opportunities as they come up. Um, you know, there's a quasi more traditional path of like working at a startup, which I think is just a proxy for getting to know the ecosystem and, you know, other venture investors and then kind of using that as a jumping off point to to get into venture. But there aren't that many jobs. So I kind of think, why waste your time doing something else if that's not really what you're trying to get to? Sure. So I guess speaking on, you know, that that job in, in the venture space, you were at the Founders Fund. I think from 2007 to 2010, which is obviously an opportunity that I know a lot of kids would, who are interested in that would like to have. Could you speak a little bit about your time there? What drew you to the Founders Fund? Was it Peter Thiel? This was, I guess, maybe before Facebook really took off and kind of the allure that the Founders Fund has today might not have existed at the time. I'm wondering if you could shed some light on how you ended up there. Yeah, I mean, things have definitely changed in the last, I mean, I left, it's been 10 years now, so 11 years now you know, things have, have definitely changed. Um, you know, when I met Peter, it was 2006. You're right. I mean, Facebook, you know, existed. And I think at that point, if memory serves, they were still only in, it, you know, in colleges and universities. So they hadn't gone mainstream yet. You know, the reason I joined, honestly, was, you know, so Peter went to Stanford. He's he's older than I am. But, you know, we had a few friends in, you know, kind of in, on the, in the in-between years that connected us. And, you know, it was a combination of, you know, Peter, Sean Parker, Luke Nosek, Ken, Ken Howery. Like it, it was just an interesting mix of folks. So I wasn't, I wasn't per se trying to get into venture. It just seemed like a interesting bunch of people to work with. And that's why I ended up, you know, at Founders Fund. You first invested in SpaceX at the Founders Fund, correct? Yeah. So first investment was in 2008. What do you think is the most intriguing thing about SpaceX and where do you see it being in? in 10 years and to kind of follow up on that, what are some of the characteristics you would say you look for in a company that has yet to hit its stride? I mean, SpaceX has accomplished a lot of, you know, pretty incredible things in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. I mean, I guess they've been around for 20 now. So they've completely revolutionized access to space. If you think back, I think it's six or seven years when they landed the first booster and they you know, we're going to launch, you know, give or take a little, probably 50 times this year, going to 100 next year, right? This is a pace of launch that no one's ever accomplished before. They're doing it with a 
you know, mostly reusable rocket that people said even a few weeks before they, you know, they landed the booster that was, that was impossible, which obviously it was not. And, you know, it's been a number of years and no one else has even built something remotely equivalent. So I think what they've done from a launch perspective is kind of shocking when you think about what they've done in the time frame they've done it in. And then you couple that with the fact that they're building Starship now, which is, you know, fully reusable, you know, drop, it'll drop the cost of access to space by at least an order, order of magnitude, which will, should enable all sorts of other ways for people to, you know, use space for commercial purposes, which is pretty amazing. It'll, it'll open up the possibility of putting people back on the moon, you know, moving people to Mars, right? Like, like this is a pretty, pretty ambitious vision of the company. And then you look at what they've done with Starlink and, you know, they're bringing internet to everyone on earth, right? High speed, low latency, which is pretty amazing, right? Like you can be in the middle of nowhere and all you need is to be able to see the sky and have access to power. And suddenly you have just as good internet as, you know, anyone in America who lives in a major city, right? Possibly better than some places in major cities as well, right? Like that, that's, that's kind of an amazing change in terms of connecting the world. And, you know, there's definitely some bad things about the internet, but there's a lot of good things. And I think, you know, COVID really made it clear that the internet is education, it's employment, it's entertainment, right? Like if you can give people access to that, that, that will on average dramatically improve people's lives for the better. Touched on a few things that makes best. SpaceX particularly intriguing, maybe such something like a vision, proprietary, unique. There's also a founder, which is a big deal in the startup space. I'm wondering what are some of the indexes you consider in this growth stage that are unique to this part of the funding process, as opposed to like such as, you know, a pre-seed or a series A investment that you as a growth stage investor consider when deciding where to put your money. I mean, these days when we're investing, right, we're, we're showing up at the point where there are actually numbers to look at. You know, once there are numbers, you can understand, you know, how repeatable is the sales process. You can understand what the unit economics are. You have a better understanding of growth. So I think those are kind of like the, you know, necessary, but not necessarily sufficient checkboxes. You know, for us, when you look at venture, right, the, the challenge is that you don't get to control your duration. So, when you make an investment, like you could be in that for three years or you could be in that for 12. And those are very different time horizons. And you want to make sure that whatever you're investing in is a durable business. And so when I say durable, what I mean is like, what are businesses that are going to be able to maintain their growth rates, you know, going forward, who are going to be able to protect their margins going forward, you know, in, on the off chance there's greater competition, right? Because if you end up with low growth and low margins, that will compress multiples and then it's not a very good venture investment. So we care about durability. I think there's a handful of business models that make that more likely to happen, right? So you look at marketplaces, you look for network effects, information asymmetries, economies of scale, right? There are, there are business models that make it more likely that when these companies succeed, they will end up, you know, being large players in their industry and they will be big outcomes, right? And that's, that's ultimately what you need to make the numbers for venture work. I know kind of one of the core missions for Elon has been to put a human on Mars. Do you have any thoughts really on the feasibility of this idea and how do you feel about space travel as the next big thing? I mean, I know a lot of critics have kind of talked about how they struggle to understand like the real world applicability of some of these things to like your average day American kind of, if you could talk about that a little bit as well. I mean, I think the answer is it's totally practical, right? I don't think it's an easy uh, thing to accomplish, but 
they're very much on a track where they will. And while Elon may not be the best at timelines, he's always been able to deliver on where he's trying to go. So I, I think the likelihood that it happens is incredibly high. Whether or not it happens, you know, if it's delayed for some period of time, I don't think it's going to be delayed for 50 years, right? So like if he misses by a few years, I honestly don't know why that would matter. You know, I don't think you necessarily have to care that much about putting people on Mars to believe SpaceX is an incredibly important and valuable company, which I just think is an important caveat, right? Like people get, you know, sidetracked by the, you know, we're going to Mars, which is 100% the mission, right? Like that that's definitely true, but there's, uh, you know, the launch business, you know, the Starlink business, right? Like these are huge opportunities that can easily justify, you know, SpaceX as the, you know, as the business it is today. You know, in terms of why I think it's it's probably broadly important, I mean, in many respects, it's like, it's it's an age-old question of like, why does exploration matter, right? And people have been doing this since the beginning of civilization. Resources matter, right? There are lots of resources in space. So there are possible, you know, opportunities there. But if you, if you look at like the history of NASA, right? There's a lot of incredible inventions that came out because we tried to solve problems that happen to be related to space, right? And and so I think that those have applications in all sorts of day-to-day things, whether or not it's, you know, directly from a consumer perspective or, you know, ends up in the supply chain went from a manufacturing perspective. I think solving hard problems is, you know, in and of itself probably useful because the second order effects are almost certainly valuable. Just to back up a little bit from your time at the Founders Fund, you obviously left there and started your own fund. How did you know that that was the right time to do so? How did how is the market then different to the market now? You've been there for a decade plus. If you could speak to maybe how the transition or evolution has occurred. I think you never know if it's the right time to do anything. In fact, most of my view in venture is to try not to have a view about timing because being right about timing is, I think, impossible because anyone who could do that could just they, they would be a trillionaire very quickly by playing the public markets, right? So I, I really try not to have a view about timing. I think the difference between people who start things and people who don't is simply that some people start things, right? Like it is, it is the, it is taking the first step that is the hard one. You know, whether or not it works out is some combination of execution and luck, but most people just never make the jump. So that's, that's probably the, the big barrier. I mean, in terms of how things have evolved, right? Uh, you know, we've been running 137 ventures for, you know, 11 years now. And, you know, the major difference in the market is honestly, it's just gotten way bigger, right? So if you think back to 2011, I don't know, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but like the number of unicorn, right? Billion dollar companies was probably, I could probably count on one hand. And now it's hundreds, right? If not, I don't know if it's a couple thousand now, I have to think about that for a second, but it's at least two orders of magnitude bigger than what it was a decade ago. And, you know, that has made it for, you know, a very compelling opportunity for us. You've been uh, running 137 Ventures for roughly 10 years now. What are some of the biggest lessons you'd say you've learned? I mean, it's hard to do anything. It's a hard thing to build any kind of business. Things usually take longer than you expect. And even when you know that they take longer than they expect, it's very hard to correct for that amount and end up, you know, with the right estimate. And so even though you know that it's still, it's still things take longer than you expect, which is sort of a funny, which is sort of a funny dynamic. You know, I mean, I've learned a ton of things along the way, right? It's a, it's a combination of the team has grown, right? When, when we started, it was just a few of us. Now we're up to, I don't know, 22 some odd people. 
right? We've raised five funds. You know, there's been a lot of, you know, lessons along the way in terms of, you know, fundraising and building partnerships with, you know, our investors and things like that. Certainly learned a lot about the companies that we've invested in and, you know, from the investments that, you know, went well, from the investments that didn't go well, right? Like, you know, it's been, it's been a good journey, but I think we've stayed, you know, true to the high level thesis that, you know, the private markets would continue to get bigger, that, you know, that would create opportunities for the, you know, where founders and executives would need liquidity. And, you know, that would be a differentiated and, you know, less competitive way to access really great companies. And I think that's been, you know, that is, that is mostly turned out, you know, the way we expected, but, you know, along the way, there are lots of things to learn. You said some things are hard to do. We know it's hard to be a founder. It's hard to be an entrepreneur. I'm wondering in your time, some traits some characteristics that you think that differentiate those that make it, those that don't make it, those that end up with a unicorn, you know, any insight that you have from your position? Um, I mean, I think there's a variety of things, right? Like you, you have to, you know, you have to have a long-term view. I think people who, you, you know, are very focused on building something that solves a real problem and taking a long-term view are a lot more likely to get there. You know, like I said, that these things are some combination of execution and, and luck. So you, you can't fully control your own fate, but you can do things that you know, increase the likelihood of success, even if only by small amounts. You know, I think it's always important if you've got founders who understand what they're good at and what their limitations are and are always, you know, interested in, in leveling up the team, right? And so that's a combination of, you know, always learning on their part and getting better and then making sure that they're surrounding themselves with executives who have right experience and, you know, are, are, you know, better than the, the people that were on the team before, because the folks who get you from, you know, zero to one are not necessarily the people that you want uh, from one to 10. And that doesn't make them bad. It just means they're good at a certain thing. And then you need different people, right? That's just the nature of kind of the hyper growth that venture tends to, tends to catalyze. How would you describe your investing style? Like, would you say you focus more on founders, product, valuation? Um, kind of like, how do you, when you're sourcing an investment, how do you kind of think about it? I mean, all these things matter, right? It, I, like, you know, there are certainly a category of companies that are perfectly good companies, but if they are priced in a way that does not make sense, you cannot make any money as an investor. <laughs> so, you know, you you can't simply ignore valuation because being an investor doesn't make money is not a recipe for your, for your LPs to, to re up in the future, right? That, that's a quick way to go out of business or in this industry, perhaps a slow way to go out of business. You know, I think, I think founders and teams matter, but by the time we're showing up, like there's actual data. So you can look at the numbers and you can understand more about the business. I mean, a lot of the time, you know, like the financial numbers are relatively easy to figure out, right? Like if you have any background in finance and know how to use Excel, you, a lot of people can figure that out. In most of the conversations I have with people are really about, you know, product and product vision, because that, that is, you know, we're not investing in the business as it is today. We're investing in the business as it will be five to 10 years from now. So understanding what people are building is important because you don't always understand, like just from what they've built, it, that's a lot less interesting. So you want to understand where they're going. So how does somebody acquire this skill set or this expertise that, you might have now that it's obviously taken maybe decades plus to be where you are as a young person, as a college student. How does someone kind of build that acumen to have that eye for what something that might take off or might be that great investment? 
I mean, I think, you know, the industry is still mostly an apprenticeship kind of business, right? So you have to learn by doing stuff and actually making decisions and taking responsibility for them, right? Like investments are, are very easy if you don't actually put any money on them, right? So it's easy to say, well, I would totally would have invested in that company or I wouldn't have invested in that company. But, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, those are very easy decisions, you know, when you actually have to put a line in the sand and say, like, I'm going to put my reputation on the line for making this investment, that, that tends to clarify things. You know, for us, you know, we, we've sort of committed to promoting people from within the organization. So, you know, we're we're trying to give people the experience where they can keep going and until that doesn't really work anymore. So, you know, we give people, you know, more more visibility and and, you know, on the whatever deals they're working on and eventually, you know, we try to get them kind of small check writing authority. And, you know, as as people demonstrate that they are good at the job, they get more and more responsibility. Have you in your time maybe in this apprenticeship model gotten any particularly memorable advice from someone who is more senior and, and seen a few things in their day? I mean, there's not like a specific thing that jumps out at me. Like, I don't think these things are like, there's not like one thing that if I tell you that it's really going to like change everything about your worldview. It's just the little pieces that you see that, that really, when you add them all up, matter a lot. Even like the comment I made earlier about you don't get to control your duration and venture. I think people just forget that, right? And they're like a lot of heuristics and venture. Oh, you know, the fund needs 20% ownership or whatever. And it's like people don't understand where those things come from, right? So it's like if you use tools, but you don't understand why things were built that way, that's, it is a fundamentally more brittle understanding of the world. Understanding like how portfolio construction matters and how do you drive fund level returns and that fundamentally, if you believe that you've got, you know, let's say you have some company that's 20x, right? You could spend a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out how the other investments that are not doing nearly as well could double. But if you can find one way to make that company double, well, now it's a 40x, right? And that's way more valuable than all the things that you could you could get from a 1x to a 2x, right? It's like that last double really fundamentally drives returns. And I think that's not, yeah, I mean, it's like somewhat obvious, right? But it's it's not always top of mind for people. We, we talked a little bit kind of about Starlink and some of the possibilities through it. It's generated a lot of public interest with Elon supporting Ukraine uh, with access to Starlink. Can you touch a little bit about maybe some of the possibilities and how you expect it might change underserved areas, like what access to high-speed internet will kind of mean for them? Well, Ukraine, I mean, is obviously an interesting example because Russia clearly doesn't want it to work and it continues to work. So I think they've demonstrated a real capability that's valuable for national security. And the fact that, you know, this works for Ukraine would suggest that other, you know, large countries would want this kind of capability. So, so I think that's, that's been a, you know, very important command and control capability they've demonstrated. You know, if you look more broadly though, I mean, you know, they've, they've done some things you know, on the humanitarian front, like there was the uh, there was the uh, volcanic eruption in Fiji, right? Like they were cut off from the internet. They, you know, people couldn't fig- find out whether or not their relatives were alive, and you couldn't coordinate rescue efforts and things like that. It's like, well, if you can if you can bring Starlink there and you have power and you can see the sky, which ironically is a little bit more challenging for volcanic eruptions, but like all these emergency response you know things, and they've done these things for wildfires. There are a couple there are a couple things in the U.S. where they deployed this, like. This is really game changing, right? I mean, command and control is something that usually gets discussed in the context of like defense and war, but matters a lot for emergency response. 
right? It's been transformative for a variety of communities that they've turned on, you know, like they've done some things like the Navajo Nation, where these are communities that had been, there's a complicated history in America, you know, for, for well, lots of things, but these are communities that are generally speaking very poor and don't have access to high-speed internet. But once again, high-speed internet is, you know, that's employment, right? That's job training, that's jobs, that's education for their kids, right? Like it's, it's like a, it's a fundamentally transformational technology. So it's very simple, but it, it opens up many more opportunities for people. So opportunities today in the job market are a little bit challenging at this time. As we know, new companies or new ventures to start is a daunting era that we're in. I'm wondering if how you think it's best to navigate, you know, the current climate, the current market. How can you be creative? How can you be nimble? What should founders consider now that's maybe on their plate? that wasn't on their plate five, 10 years ago, just given current circumstances? Well, everything sort of comes full circle, right? So, you know, I think these things were on people's plates, you know, after 2008. But for the last some number of years, people never really thought about having to raise money and that being a challenging thing. That's back, right? I think people care a lot more about runway and, you know, how much cash do they have and what's what kind of milestones they need to hit in order to raise, you know, more capital. And that's more approximating you know, today's environment than, you know, 2021, you know, kind of the end of the bull run craziness. So, I mean, I think that's very much on, on people's top of mind for founders, but, you know, when things aren't like when the world is kind of, you know, difficult and a mess, I think that means there are lots of opportunities to solve problems, right? Cause there are lots of problems. So, you know, if you go back and you look at these sort of cycles, whether or not it was after, you know, 2000 or after 2008, right? Like there were opportunities for people to create great companies everyone thinks this is like a worse time, but you know, in many respects, it's like a perfectly good time, right? When money is cheap and valuations are high, it turns out, you know, talent is expensive and hard to centralize. When, you know, times are tough and money is hard, you know, there, there aren't that many great companies for, you know, great engineers to go to. So they tend to end up in one place and then you get this great concentration of talent and on average, it, these things cost less. So, you know, in some sense, you're just kind of moving numbers around, right? It's like, but this feels like a perfectly good opportunity for people to build, you know, great long-term businesses. You actually just got to do it. How would you say you're kind of approaching this market then in terms of investing? Like, are you being more aggressive with the way you deploy your capital? Or are you taking a more conservative approach? In some sense, neither. Venture is a lumpy business, sort of by definition, right? In the public markets, if you like a company, you can buy it today, sell it tomorrow, buy it back next week, right? You can change your mind 47 times. And if you think earnings are going to be good, you can buy it. And if they are good, you'll sell it and whatever. That is not the dynamic in the in the private markets, right? You are, if you make a an investment, you are stuck with it for an extended period of time. That also means that there's only a moment when you can make that investment, right? Like I can't, you know, pick any company in our portfolio. Like I can't call them every day and be like, hey, can I put in more money? Like there, there's not an opportunity to do that every day, right? These things are episodic. And so because the venture, you know, the venture industry is lumpy, it's like sometimes there are going to be great opportunities, maybe three great companies in Q1. And if there are, we should invest in all of them. And if they're not great, why would we invest in any of them? Right. So I think there's a bar that you want to you, you want to make sure everything is above when there you're not seeing any opportunities that are above the bar. You should do nothing. And it's somewhat hard psychologically to not do anything for an extended period of time. But why would you lower the bar in order to make a mediocre investment just because you haven't done something if everything is above the bar and you have five great opportunities like you should make all five of those investments right the question is is it a great opportunity and if it is why why not why wouldn't you make them 
seems that in this space that's particularly episodic, there's always this maybe fear of missing out. There's always kind of a mad dash towards the next big thing. We've seen this week with FTX kind of all start crumbling down in the space of a week. Do you think there's anything to learn from this situation? They've had a couple crazy valuation fundraising rounds over the past few years. Is there something we can take away so something like this doesn't you know, reach this state? I mean, I'm not close to the FTX situation. I mean, we're not investors in the company, nor were we investors, you know, more broadly in crypto. So I'm I'm not that close to the details. Uh, but I mean, you sort of described FOMO, and I think that's just a tough way to live. So yeah, I would. I mean, I think if you want to have a long term view on investing, which is I think particularly important in venture, I I would really strive not to live my life that way because I think one, it's just I think it'll just be unhappy. And two, it will probably drive you to make bad decisions. So, so I, I would I would definitely try to avoid those things. You know, FDX in particular seems like quite the mess, but I'm not close to it, so it, it's hard to know what people should have done or should have known, or even if they could have known. Right? Like failure is part of the business. If they should have known or done things differently, hopefully they'll take those lessons away from it. But you know, not everything's going to work in this industry, um, and nor does it need to. You you see a lot of VCs specialize in a specific industry. 137 Ventures has really sort of avoided that philosophy. Can you talk a little bit maybe about what are some of the advantages you see in being sector agnostic? I mean, sector you know, being sector agnostic just means the opportunity set is is much larger. And the sacrifice is that, you know, you have a little bit less, you know, industry-specific knowledge. I think you see more of the specialization on the, you know, on the earliest side, you know, the earliest stage, right, where that's going to help you a lot more. Once there's data it's a little less important to know everything about the industry because, you know, they have customers. So it's like, I know the product works because they have customers who are paying for it and I can call those customers and ask them about it. That's different than, do you know if these people are going to be able to build the product and does the market want that, or, you know, will that product, you know, matter to the, the market you're trying to sell it to, right? That requires a little bit more industry specific knowledge. So I think our opportunity set is broader, but we're coming in after the companies made some level of progress that makes it a little bit easier to do that. You know, while we've been sector agnostic, I think the thing that ties the portfolio together is this concept of durability and what business models ultimately lead to companies that can defend their margins and growth over time. And and so like that's consistent irrespective of sector. So that, I mean, I think that's the thread that holds the portfolio together. What, what advice have you been giving kind of your portfolio, I guess, in managing this current market cycle? Oh, I mean, a lot of this is just making sure you know, people are well capitalized, but we really did that in the last market cycle, right? So, you know, in, in this market cycle, you kind of, you have the hand you were dealt, right? There, there are limits to what you can do once everything changes. Your opportunity to affect outcomes are beforehand, not after. You know, in the current environment, I think we've always cared about strong balance sheets. And so if you look at our big positions, people really have runway for years, like not one year or two years, like three, four, five years, right? And you know, a lot of them are actually break-even cash flow positive-ish. So so you know, we're less worried than I suspect, you know, some of the earlier stage guys, because companies at that level tend not to raise more than 18 to 24 months of cash. And in the previous environment, you know, you could always raise another round three months later at twice the price. So I, I think people people weren't necessarily managing their burn rate. I, I think across our portfolio, people raised a lot of money, but they were you know, more thoughtful about increasing their burn rate and what the efficiencies of the business are. So people are transitioning now more towards 
unit economics and getting to cash flow positive faster than I think they would have if the environment hadn't changed, but they're under less pressure than the market as a whole because they have strong balance sheets and they didn't jack up their burn rates to kind of the same, you know, commensurate with the amount of money that they raised. As 137 continues to grow and I guess you're able to write bigger checks, do you foresee like maybe investing at a different stage, more established companies? Is there something that's drawing you specifically to this growth period or how do you foresee maybe the next couple of years or decade plus? I mean, I think we want to grow the fund in a thoughtful way, right? If you just, you know, whatever, 10x your fund size, you know, fundamentally you're in a different business, right? Like you have to change everything that you do. If you, you know, if you incrementally change your fund size, you know, what it, what it really means is that maybe your fundraising cycle gets a little longer if, if you decide that like it doesn't make sense to do things differently, right? So fund size is basically a proxy for dollars invested a year. And so what happened was, you know, you had a lot of people in the industry who raised a fund and then deployed it in nine months, right? And then they went back to their LPs and said, hey, we, we would like to raise the next fund. And like that works until all the LPs run out of money because you you basically invested all the money and you haven't returned anything, right? So, it, you know, conceptually, LPs should cut their commitment sizes if people are raising funds those quick, you know, that quickly. Um, and if you raise a really big fund and you deploy it over one year or five years, right? Like it's really just how much did you p- deploy on average each year, right? And the more consistent that is, the easier it is for, you know, LPs to plan for that and make commitment sizes accordingly. You know, not every, the industry is, does not react uh, in perfect time with all these things. And so there's kind of a reset going kind of through the capital markets for venture, right? Because a lot of LPs ended up with denominator problems. But, you know, these things will get worked out and, you know, the industry will continue on as if nothing changed. Well, thanks so much for your time, Justin. We wanted to kind of close with our talk with a question we ask all our guests, and that's, uh, what is your hottest take? So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll tie it into your FTX question, though perhaps it's a little unfair to the people uh, who invested. But like, it, you know, you can't rely on other people to do the work, right? I think that there is there is some view that people do diligence in venture, and I, I think it, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, and it's somewhat random, and you really just can't rely on other people to to do things or assume that like they're making a good investment. And you can look at like lots of great firms like you know Sequoia or Benchmark or whatever, and if you do some of their deals, but not all of their deals, it's quite possible your returns are terrible. If you do 100% of their deals at higher prices, your returns will be exactly their returns, you know, minus, uh, you know, whatever, whatever premium you had to pay, right? But missing one deal could be the difference between your returns being very good or really crappy, right? Because this is venture and a very small number of companies drive all the returns. I don't know if that's controversial, but I certainly believe it. It's, it's good advice nonetheless. I'll say that. Most things that are controversial tend to just be like straightforward good advice that for some reason everyone has forgotten. And that's the bottom line. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to find us online at harvardventures.org. If you're a company or individual interested in working with us, email us at hello at harvardventures.org and follow us on Instagram at harvard underscore ventures. Tune in next week for another episode of The Bottom Line.